We've all heard the phrase, the best laid plans of mice and men, and you may or may not have heard the end of that, often go awry. I have a strange mind. When I hear cliches like that, I want to know where they came from. So I looked it up. It was adapted from a poem by the Scottish poet Robert Burns in 1785. And he was a farmer. And apparently he was plowing field, disturbed the nest of a mouse. And he wrote this long poem afterwards, according to his brother, on the spot about this event. And it got him thinking about what happens in life and about how the things that we plan don't often happen the way that we expect. I'd like, I don't know if I've done this here before or not. I know I've done this before in a sermon, but I'm going to risk that I haven't. I would like to try an experiment with you for a moment. If you want, you can close your eyes. It's not going to be shocking. It's not too hard. And I think that for most everyone in the room, we can handle this. Maybe one or two who can't do this. Okay, so here's, here it goes. I want you to picture your 16-year-old self. I told you that a few of you won't be able to do this. But think about your 16-year-old self. What was your life like? Do you remember it? There are some smiles and a few maybe almost grimaces. But it wasn't that hard. So before you open your eyes, I want you to think about this. What did you expect out of life when you were 16? What was your plan? You can open your eyes. I turned 16 at the tail end of 1987, 30 years ago. I was a sophomore at Yorkville High School. I took biology and geometry in Pascal. That used to be a computer language that people wrote programs in. Later that year, I would be driving what I affectionately called the Gray Ghost to school. That would be a silver 1981 Pontiac Le Mans station wagon with burgundy pleather interior. At the beginning, no tape deck. This was pre-CD, and iPods were not even a dream yet. At the time, the Macintosh 2 and Windows 2.0 were brand new. It was a different world. In 1987, Ronald Reagan famously would utter six words as a shot across the bow to the then Soviet Union. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall of the wall in Berlin. The Cold War would start to show signs of thawing. Wayne Gretzky would win his eighth consecutive MVP in the National Hockey League. Red M&Ms came back after an 11-year hiatus. Ted Danson was a bartender at Cheers, not some guy on CSI, which is now done. Bill Cosby was the most respected father in America, not accused of heinous crimes. And Kirk Cameron was a teenage heartthrob, not a culture warrior for Christians. The Bengals were walking like Egyptians. Los Lobos hit it big with La Bamba and the greatest album ever, The Joshua Tree. From you two released. My plan at that point was West Point. 
and a career in international relations. I did marry a Canadian, so the second part kind of worked out. I have a friend that I went to high school with who did go to West Point. And he's recently retired from the military and is looking to finish a teaching degree so that he can go back to Yorkville High School and teach math when Al Gunnerman, one of our former elders at the Sugar Grove campus, decides to retire. Now, the thing is, we had Al Gunnerman. I didn't have Al Gunnerman, but I know Dave did at Yorkville High School, so it's interesting. Life rarely turns out the way that you expect when you're 16. I have never been able to settle in my mind whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, Mostly it just is, right? But my life is certainly not what I pictured when I was 16. And we've all got expectations and we've all got plans and maybe they're conscious and maybe they're not, but they're there. And plans have a way of changing. Today is opening day for the Cubs. So it's not inappropriate to say that life has a way of throwing us curveballs. You could do that same experiment and move it from 16 to 18 or 22 when you graduate from college or 30 or 40 or any other number and guess what? The same thing is going to be true. I can say with the kind of certainty that I am rarely comfortable with that I did not expect the life that I am now leading. The saying is not wrong. I didn't expect to live 20 minutes from where I grew up or be working for a publisher or to have an almost 17-year-old with autism. I didn't expect to be living with an ongoing health concern of diabetes. I didn't expect any of a hundred other things that have happened to me, some of them in the last two years. And today we come to James chapter 4, verses 13 to 17, and we're going to talk about the plans that we make in life. And this is what James says. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. So then... If you know the good you ought to do and don't do it, you sin. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning I pray that we would hear your words, that we would see how we are to live our lives before you in spite of the curveballs that come our way. I pray that you would allow your truth and your words to speak through me, and that they would be both a challenge to us and a comfort. I think this morning of the news that came out Friday that Caterpillar is closing an entire plant in Aurora that's been there since the 50s, and all of the plans that have been affected by so many, for so many families. Uh, I pray for your peace and your wisdom. 
As we look to the future, Lord, I pray that we would look first to you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The text this morning is at once familiar and strange. If you've been around church for any length of time, you've heard this passage. At least the, if it is the Lord's will part. We've been taught that we're supposed to say that, right? We kind of tack it on to the end of whatever we say so that we feel like we're covered. Okay, we're good. And at the same time, we look at this and we think, okay, what on earth does James have against planning? So as we look at this, I want to look through both of these elements. And, and I want us to see that just like he does throughout the book, James sets up a contrast for us in this passage. Two ways of looking at the world, two ways of acting in it, two paths to take, as it were. And in the first, we're going our own way. This is the person in verses 13 and 14 and 16. This is the way that, frankly, we Westerners, we Americans are trained to think. What's the American ideal? Rugged individualism. I was tempted to use the Marlboro Man as an example, but you know that we're not allowed to talk about that anymore. Um, I did it my way. And as I mentioned the last time I was here a couple weeks ago, we see this in our movies and our books and the stories that we tell about our history as well as in our advertising. I'm listening to the, to the audiobook of 1776 right now. Uh, by David McCullough. Um, And it's interesting to see how that works its way into even that. And it's also interesting to see how all of us, no matter what our background is here in this country, no matter what our religious or political affiliation, even our ethnic identities, we're trained to use these stories to define and defend how we think of things, regardless if they are in direct conflict with someone else, using a different story in the same sort of way. The lone person deciding to change reality, to bend it to their will in spite of all odds. And it sounds great. And it makes for great movies and great novels. And in our passage today... We're tempted to ask, how is verse 14, today or tomorrow we will go into this or that city and spend a year there and carry on business and make money, how is that different than any sound business plan? I mean, so here's the plan, right? We're going to go start a new business, and there's this need. We found this need. There's a hole in the market. People want X. But no one is really filling this need in the market, so we're going to do it. I can provide X. I know I can provide X. I can do it cheaply and efficiently. And here's the best part. I can charge $24.99 for X, and it only cost me $4.99 to make. Amazing. I've run the numbers. I've got the suppliers lined up. All you have to do is take the plunge. Well, we've got to figure out the marketing. We'll build a website. It'll be fine, right? And to quote the sage of my childhood, Admiral Akbar from Star Wars, it's a trap. You see, 
The trap is worldly thinking of looking at life from only one perspective. It doesn't seem like a trap. It seems like common sense. You don't go into business without a plan. After all, at least not if you want to survive. I seem to recall reading or hearing somewhere that most restaurants only last 18 months. 18 months. Way back when, I worked for Lemstone Christian Stores. We were a franchise organization, which meant that person wanted to open a Christian store, they came to us, they bought a franchise, and we would train them, and we would give them support, and they got to use our name and our stuff, and we would help them run their business. Pastor Keith, the executive pastor for Village Bible Church, was the VP of operations when I was there as a buyer. And I remember having to read a book about owning a business and the need to be able to live at least a year with no money coming in from your business. And many people fell into the trap of thinking that they were just going to make money without trying, and it was going to happen immediately, and it was going to be okay. They didn't need long-term savings to make a go of it. And every time, they were wrong. Every time. The trap was thinking that they could do it on their own. That nothing would happen. No hiccups, no unforeseen circumstances, no natural disasters, no health problems. The furnace is not going to blow. The car won't go out. Or pick any one of a hundred of those small things that happen in life. Right? Those things that happen to us all that we can't plan for. The trap of worldly thinking, what James is pointing us to, is that we think we can do it and we can control everything. That we can control everything we need to and everything is going to happen the way we want it. It doesn't really matter what type of a person we are. We all think this way. Some of us are natural planners, right? We want to figure everything out, get it all locked down all the things done, task list in order, everything accounted for, all our ducks in a row, the I's dotted, the T's crossed. Others of us, well, not so much. I'm tempted to say we like to live by the seat of our pants, but maybe we like to be spontaneous. We'll put it that way. We like to take life as it comes. Go with the flow. Respond and see what happens. And looking at this passage, we can be tempted to say that, it, that James is pointing us to live life that second way. But that would be missing the point. Because both of those ways of thinking are this same trap. They both have this worldly viewpoint, not because they are consciously evil, but it's in the very real often completely unrecognized fact that they have left something out of the equation. Even if we've planned for every contingency that we can think of, even if we see the writing on the wall and we've given ourselves that year's worth of money that we need, life happens. The curveballs come. This kind of worldly thinking does one thing wrong. It leaves one thing out of the equation, and that's God. 
It's nowhere to be found. Right? We, there's a, a saying that I've heard that many Christians, especially in places like America, where we have a lot, are functional atheists. We claim that we believe in God, that we follow Christ, but in our day-to-day lives, we act as if everything is up to us. And we don't bring God into the equation. Whether we're making conscious plans or just going along for the flow, we leave God behind, making ourselves the center making ourselves the point of all of our plans. And one commentator put it this way, we speak to ourselves as if life were our right, as if our choice were the only deciding factor, as if we had in ourselves all that was needed to make a success of things, as if getting on, making money, doing well, were life's sole objective. That's the way we tend to when left to our own devices. And we take it a step farther because those plans, those kinds of plans, where we're tempted to go, lead to the temptation to boast. James is probably aiming this section of his letter at some fairly well-to-do people, especially if chapter 5, verse 1 is any indication, now listen, you rich people. But even if that, weren't, that verse weren't completely in view, all we have to do is think about who's the kind of person in the first century who would be able to just move to a different city and start a business. For that matter, think about most of us today. And we can be tempted to think that this passage really doesn't apply to us because, well, most of us aren't rich. Not when we look around. But whether we are or we're not, we all have this temptation to boast. And frankly, being rich is a matter of perspective when we think about how most of the world lives. James says in verse 16, You boast in your arrogant schemes, and all such boasting is evil. Seems harsh. And I'm tempted to say, Well, I'm not arrogant. I'm not scheming. I'm just trying to get by. I'm trying to pay the bills to take care of my family. I work hard. This, is not, this passage is not about me. But given that we all tend to fall into this trap of worldly thinking, of creating our plans on our own, we have to realize that we do this, and when we leave God out of the equation, we're tempted to boast. Look at me. Look at what I've done. Right? Look at what I've achieved. And it's not something we have to learn. This is not a learned behavior. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I was at Trader Joe's in Batavia. And there's this dad, late 20s, early 30s maybe. And he's got a two, two-and-a-half-year-old daughter. She's got, you know, one of these tiny shopping carts that they give out for kids? And it was hilarious. She was on a mission. Right? He's trying to keep her from running into displays and knocking stuff over. No, I do it. And she's pointing at him. Is she one hand and the cart veers off, right? And it was hilarious. 
And at the same time, you know, I was tempted to go over to him and as he's trying to correct her and say, look, don't sweat it. We've all been there. Right. But she was off like a shot in the opposite direction and he was trying to keep up and there was no way I was chasing him down for that. It was kind of funny. But it doesn't get any better when we get older. Right. Think about elementary school and junior high and high school and beyond. We want the latest and the best. Look what I have. Look what I've achieved. Look at me. And then we get older than that. And it's what school did I get into or what job did I get or look at the car that I drive or the house that I have. And we want to boast. And there's a, the truth of the matter is there's a lot that we can do on our own. Because God made us that way. To be able to do, to achieve function to create and we look around and we watch people ungodly people who prosper not only prosper like they do really well and this is not news right this is David talks about it in the Psalms Uh, God why do they get to do why do they prosper And we wonder why not us. And we plan and we scheme and we don't see the trap until it closes around us. Boasting of our own plans is evil because as chapter 4 verse 4 says, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? You see, we subtly take on this way of thinking, maybe without even realizing it, And it's opposed to everything that God is about. And James warns us in verse 14. He he says, hey, remember, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. The truth of the matter is we are mist, vapor. We aren't here that long. And the older I get, the faster it seems to go. And the more aware I am of just how short life is. How little control we really have. Saw my grandmother yesterday. She's 98. And my grandfather is 99 now. He's in a nursing home. And they've lived in their house since the 50s. And she doesn't know what to do with herself at night with him gone. And it moves by so fast. Doesn't feel like it, but it does. Life is short. Mist is insubstantial, fleeting. This is the image from the book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanity, all is vanity. The word is mist. Vapor. And if we think about the climate of Palestine, of Israel, it's dry. There's very, generally speaking, there's only one place where mist happens. It's along the coast in the mornings, water droplets in the air, and in a couple of hours, the mist is burnt off. The sun and the wind do their thing, and it's gone. Right? It's fleeting. We're mist, and we know it. We don't want to admit it, but we know that we are. And perhaps that's why we stick so 
closely to our plans or we decide it's just about whatever plan I have or don't have. Not long ago, I read a novel, Swedish novel, A Man Called Ove. You've probably seen it, bestseller list. Um, I saw the movie just a couple of days ago, subtitles. It's totally worth the effort. It's a great movie. It's the story of a grumpy old man and the neighbors who move in next door. He's Swedish, and you don't see him very much, and his wife is Persian, Iranian, and she's a handful. And Ove, Ove has plans for life, and life got in the way repeatedly, and he comes face to face with the reality that life, we are missed, and he fights it, but it's always losing. And the story is profoundly human. It makes me smile and laugh. It made me cry. It is an amazing story, and I really recommend it. I don't do that very often. It's completely human, and it reminds us of our need to be human to one another. That we really can't go it alone. That our plans, well, we control far less than we want to admit. But there's also this glaring hole in the story. A gap. The missing part of the equation. God is nowhere to be found. And when he's not, well, you can't help but have a hole. James reminds us, reminds us in verse 15 that God is to be our guide. You ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. And this is the second path, the way out of the trap. James reminds us that God is to be our guide. Verse 15 begins with what is in Greek an imperative infinitive. That means that it is not a suggestion. And it is not a one and done thing. It is a command. And it is every time we look to the future. Or maybe better, a better way to say it is, always look at life this way. When we see that God is to be our guide, we can see two things from James' admonition. First, planning isn't the problem. You may have heard this other cliche, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. There's some truth to that. We control far less than we would like. But if we take this to mean that we shouldn't plan at all, we're missing James' point. James didn't say, don't plan. And neither will you find this in any place in Scripture that there is a pattern of not planning, just taking it as it goes. Proverbs tells us over and over again that we should plan. In fact, I like the way the NLT renders chapter, Proverbs chapter 6, verses 6 to 11. Take a lesson from the ants, you lazy bones. Learn from their ways and become wise. Though they have no prince or governor or ruler to make them work, they labor hard all summer, gathering food for the winter. But you, lazy bones, how long will you sleep? When will you wake up? A little extra sleep, a little more slumber, a little folding the hands to rest. 
then poverty will pounce on you like a bandit and scarcity will attack you like an armed robber. Planning isn't the problem. Problem. Proverbs 15.22 says, Plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors they succeed. In chapter 16, verse 23, Commit the, to the Lord whatever you do, and He will establish your plans. We had better make plans. And when we do, we need to start from this angle. Proper perspective puts God at the center of our plans. The more I study scripture, the more I see that this is one of, if not the bedrock truth it teaches. The rules are important. The way we ought to live is important. Getting the doctrines that we have about the church or about the end of the world exactly right, or what goes on in baptism and communion, even how the atonement works, these are all important. But if we don't get this right first, none of that matters. Put God at the center of our plans. In Jeremiah 31, verse 33, one of my favorite passages This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their people and they will be, I will be their God and they will be my people. What is being said here? The new covenant is all about our heart being focused on God, having God be at the center of everything that we do everything that we are. Scripture is always pointing to this truth. God must be at the center. From the Garden of Eden in Genesis to the city of God in Revelation 22, putting God at the center is the heart of the story of Scripture. Paul tells us in Philippians 2 to put on the mind of Christ. And James over and over again in James tells us, put God in the center of our plans. And that's the heart of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 to 7. Take yourself out of the center of your life and put God there. Why does this keep coming up over and over again? Because that's not our natural proclivity. It's not where we want to go. Jesus' life and teaching, his death and resurrection shows us and tells us how We can't do that on our own, which is, of course, the point of everything that James has been teaching us throughout this series. He's consistently telling us to put God first because on our own we won't. There's a whole lot in James about how do we get along with one another, with ethics, how to move off of our natural inclinations, and about putting God at the center of our life. And the way that he does that is in and through our son. That's how we are his son. That's how we do it. We are able to change the way that we think because of Christ. Finally, this morning, there's this odd sort of tacked on thought in verse 17. So then, well... The ESV puts it this way. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Feels like a hard left turn, right? Doesn't seem to quite fit 
with what's going on here. But on closer inspection, I think it really does. It's telling us something about giving over our will. Because here's the thing about planning. It's about more than what we put down on paper or the things that we go through in our minds. Around the first of the year, many of us make resolutions, and very few of us make it past three weeks. Planning involves the will. And James gets us there by bringing us face to face with our sins of omission. And most commentators here will tell you that verse 17 is a maxim, a lot like the Proverbs that Solomon collects in the book of Proverbs, right? And it's also probably the conclusion to everything that's gone on from chapter 1 to chapter 4, and it's the capstone of this, this part before the next section. He's been teaching us how we ought to live, how our faith should affect the way that we live life in the real world. After all, that's the title of the sermon series, right? Real faith in real life. Sins of commission are the things that we actively do that are wrong. The things that we knowingly commit. Sins of omission are, as Wheaton College professor Grant Osborne puts it, those sins in which we know better and yet fail or omit to make the correct decision. We likely sin more in the latter than in the former. That fails to do it part of this verse, whoever knows to do the right thing and fails to do it, it's present tense. And the reason why that's important because it means we never put our knowledge into action. And that's not a new theme for James. In chapter 1, verse 22, he said, don't just listen to the word, do what it says. So how do we connect the dots here? I think that while this verse, this this last verse 17 is connected to all of chapters 1 to 4, there's a direct connection to the area of the plans we make for our lives. Specifically, what we do with our money and how we orient our lives. After all, the passage today is about planning and prosperity and money and how we build a business or what we do with life to get on. Doug Moo in his commentary in James pointed to three parables of Jesus as examples of the sin of omission. And interestingly, they all relate to, do, to what we do with our money and how we live our lives in relation to others. The first is Luke 19, verses 11 to 27. It's the parable of the servant who doesn't use the money entrusted to him. He buries it. He doesn't use what he has, and he has no plan and is only worried about himself and what will happen to him. He doesn't put his master at the center of his life. In Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46, is the parable of the sheep and the goats. And God separates them out of the judgment. And the sheep are the ones who took care of the least, who cared for the widow and the orphan, who looked for others, out for others with their time and their money. And in the parable, the king says, you took care of me, and the people are, what do you mean we took care of you? And he said, when you took care of those people, you took care of me. Being godly then, taking care of those who need to be taken care of, is actually taking care of God himself. That's what Jesus teaches. And in Luke 12, 46, there is a parable about 
a watchful servant. And Jesus calls out the one servant who knows the master's will, but doesn't do it. That is what a sin of omission looks like. And it is connected to how we live our lives. Do we live our lives for others or for ourselves? And at the end of the day, it's not about how much we have or if we're in a position to go to the city and start a business. It's about how we order our lives around ourselves or around God. All of James of this point has been a series of admonitions about how to really live our lives with God in the center. And it works its way into our lives in a variety of ways. Whether we face trial and tribulation, whether we're rich or poor, we need to persevere. We need to remember that God does not tempt but give good gifts. James tells us that we need to be slow to speak and quick to hear, that we shouldn't have favorites, that we must tame our tongues, we must choose real wisdom, we must submit to God. And finally, he says, we must follow through. This is, of course, the point of James as a whole. It's one thing to say that we follow God. It's another, and even to say, if it is God's will, it's another thing to follow through. There is a part of me, having grown up in the church, that has come to cringe at today's passage to be perfectly honest. Mostly because of how people use that phrase, if it is God's will. Most of us, it seems, have used that phrase as a way to get out of doing what we're supposed to do. It has become a magic formula for us. A way to not have to do anything or have a plan. If I just say, if it is God's will, then I can really do what I want, right? Or I can get out of doing what I don't want to do. Because, see, what I really am saying is, if it's God's will, and that's not the thing I really want to do. So if I just say, if it's God's will, and then I don't do anything about it, chances are it's going to collapse anyway, right? I don't have to do it. It wasn't God's will. See, the project didn't work. He must not have really wanted me to be involved. And if that's how we're using this passage, and I don't use the word using lightly, then we're doing it wrong. Because maybe, just maybe, God was prodding us all along, but we didn't do it because we were scared or distracted or a hundred other things. But we didn't follow through. And that's what James is telling us is a sin. You know to do good, but you don't do it. You know to put God at the center of your plans. You know that you need to do, not sit back, but you haven't. This is James 4, 2 and 3. You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get, on your pleasures. We have to get ourselves out of the center. We have to remove our petty, arrogant plans and replace them with God's. And we're only going to find them by knowing Him, by learning about who He is and what He's done for us. 
Colossians 2.9 says that we see God fully in the person of Jesus Christ. And it's when we put Him at the center of our plans, our hearts, amazing things will happen. And as I close, I close with Psalm 20, verse 4. Because when we do this, when we move God to the center of our lives and our plans, we read this. May He give you the desire of your heart and make all your plans succeed. To which I say, Amen and Amen.